Well, it's Easter morning, resurrection morning, and it also happens to be April 1st, so it is April Fool's. Uh, Kind of an interesting combination. This hasn't happened since 1956. I had to go to Google to figure that out uh, because I couldn't remember if it happened during my lifetime or not. It didn't. Uh, I don't even know if it happened during my dad's lifetime, but anyways... (laughs) It, the, the calendar's weird. It's going to happen again in just 11 years, so we won't have to wait as long the next time. But uh, there, there could be a lot of jokes played today. Kids opening Easter eggs and thinking there's chocolate in there. We should put broccoli in ours, kids, right? Like, there's April Fool's, right? Uh, I see that there's snow in the forecast tomorrow. That's like a horrible April Fool's joke. Like, how is this happening for April 2nd, right? And, and yet we know that for some, not, not all, but for a segment of unbelievers, there would be some who look at today with scorn and scoff at the fact that, that a bunch of Christians are gathering together on a Sunday morning to celebrate a guy who we say is dead and rose again. And they would look at that and scoff and say, what, what kind of joke are you guys pursuing? What, what kind of foolishness do you pursue as a people? Uh, and, and, and so I want us to think, well, is that, should we be ashamed? Are we fools? Is this just a joke? Is there any truth to the resurrection and the empty tomb? Is there a reason that we gather and celebrate what took place on the cross? And, and, and there's a part of me that just every part of me wants to raise up and say, no, we're not, we're not foolish. It really happened. Christ is alive. And in a sense, that, that would be appropriate response. In, in a sense, uh, yes, we have every right to say Christ is risen and there's actually good evidences to base our faith on that, right? But in another sense, in a way different than those might intend today to use April Fool's, there's a sense in which we say, this is folly. This is unthinkable. The Easter story that we celebrate A God who lowers himself to man's status and dies a death on a cruel cross and raises again to new life to provide forgiveness. As Paul says in Corinthians, that is folly. That is foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And so I want us to think about why in that sense, different than the way it will be used by those who scoff and mock and scorn, in a different sense, it's true. This, what we celebrate, this is, this is folly. This is difficult to wrap our minds around. This is unthinkable, very nearly madness that a story like this would actually be true, that a God would actually do what Jack just read in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And so that's where I want our focus to go as we jump into these verses. I want to start in verse 5. And as we go through these verses, what I want us to see, if you're taking notes, the one thing that I want you to walk away with is this, that the folly of the cross is the wisdom of God. The folly of the cross is the wisdom of God. In the folly of the cross, we see the glory of God displayed, His supreme sovereign wisdom displayed. And so in the folly of the cross, is the wisdom of God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, and Paul says it this way, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want to stop right there. Those of you that where Shawnee is your church home, you know that on these Sundays where I am preaching with you, we're going through the book of Philippians, and you'll notice I skipped several verses. We're going to come back to the sections that I skipped, but I wanted to look at these verses on Easter morning in particular, and you're going to see how they relate 
to the context around it. We want to see what Christ did. And so Paul is instructing the Philippians. He says, listen, what I, what I want for you is that you need to have the mind of Christ that's yours in Christ Jesus. The way that Christ thought, the way that Christ operated, his mind of thinking is the very same mind that Paul wants the Philippians to have. And so in these six verses that we're going to go through, or I guess the next... Um, the next five verses then, Paul is going to explain exactly what that mind is. Where he says, have this mind in you, he's going to take the next five verses and say, this is what Christ's mind was. And then in future weeks, you'll see how this little section we're looking at today is the foundation for why he tells them in the first four verses of chapter two that they need to have a, a, a Christ-like spirit of humility towards one another, that they need to put others' interests ahead of their own. It's because of what he's going to say Christ did in verses six through 11. It's also why in verses 12 and following, he's going to tell them that they need to obediently live out their salvation, work it out with fear and trembling, and why they need to uh, be unified as a group shining as lights in the world. The, the only way they could do that is because of the mind of Christ that's supposed to be in them in these verses here that we're going to go through. So this is the mind of Christ that they're supposed to have. Here's what Christ did. Here's what we celebrate on this Easter weekend. Verse 6. I'm going to go with verses 6 through nine, who, this is what Jesus, through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and, and so Paul takes these first three verses and he says, I want you to have the mind of Christ and here's what Christ did. And he, he puts together several phrases and we're going we're gonna to need to look at a few of them in terms of what they mean. And he says, this is what Christ did. This is what Christ did on your behalf. And, and, and this is all that Jesus accomplished and that, that, that he did. Even though it says in verse 6, he was in the form of God. So Jesus, God's Son, that word form is like the very essence and nature. It's more than just an external form. He's saying that Jesus was God's Son in His very nature, in His very being. He was in the form of God. And even though that was true, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some of your translations say He did not count equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. And so even though He was fully God, and He was equal with God, he did not have to cling to and hold tightly to, to use, his, to use his godness in an inappropriate way. It's not here as if Christ has to grasp for something that is not his. Paul is saying he's in the form of God. He, in his very nature, he's God, and he doesn't have to use it. When he took on human flesh, he didn't need to cling to that in an inappropriate way to use it for his advantage. Rather, here's what he did. Instead, he emptied himself. Some of your Bible might say he lowered himself or he made himself of no reputation. Whatever that word empty means, it, it, it can't mean truly, literally emptying himself of his godness or then he would no longer be God. And so rather, he, he was willing to not cling to everything that made him God and he was willing to lower himself and he's going to 
to describe how in each of the next phrases that come, this is how he emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant. Same word, that, that word form. So just as in his very nature, he was in every way in the form of God, now he takes on in every way the form of a servant. This speaks of what we celebrate at Christmas, that God became flesh. He, he humbled himself, he lowered himself, uh, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Think about this. The one who is in his very nature God, lowers himself to our level, takes on the form of a servant. He certainly had a lowly status as he lived through life. The New Testament says that he didn't even have a place to lay his head, that there, that there was nothing significant or special about him. He was willing to take on lowly servant status. He was willing to, to, to be born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to death. So how did Christ empty himself? Well, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. What kind of a God is willing to lower himself to that level? If you were walking the streets of Jerusalem at the time when Christ was walking the streets of Jerusalem, and if you had passed Christ on the street, you would not have noticed that he was God. You would have said in every way he was in the likeness of human form, an average ordinary human, fully God, and yet willing to come to this earth and take on human flesh, to take on human form. And this is the God who's willing to lower himself from all of the rights and privileges that he had to take on this form. Augustine, in one of his Christmas sermons, spoke about this, about God and what he was willing to take on. And he says this, speaking of God, speaking of Christ, he so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, through whom all times were made, was in the world less in years than his servants, though older than the world itself in his eternity, was made man who made man, was created of a mother whom he created, was carried by hands which he formed, nursed at the breasts which he had filled, cried in the manger in wordless infancy, he the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. This is what God did for us, right? God was willing to come down and take on human form and live amongst us. Why would a God do that? Why would he leave heaven? Why would he leave that throne, that status, with all that privilege and come down and enter this broken, messed up world where he has no status? He's not, he doesn't get any record. He's the king of kings and he lives this lowly life in human form. And yet this is the mind of Christ that the Philippines are supposed to have, that he was willing to lower himself in that way. But not only that, the verse keeps going and it says, says this, uh, as, as, as the passage keeps going, I was in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ not only lived here, but he was willing to become obedient to death. One of the commentators pointed out the fact that, that that alone, the fact that Christ was obedient to death, points to his divine nature, because you and I, we do not have to become obedient to death. Death for us is a necessity. It's an inescapable necessity. We will not escape death. Christ, because he was divine, had to become obedient to death. But not just death, even death on a cross. And for the Philippians that heard Paul say that, when they wrote that, we don't think about the cross in the same way that they do. 
For Christ, the Son of God, to be obedient to death on a cross, that would have struck them to the very core. Because the cross was a kind of death that was only reserved for the worst of the worst, for the lowest of the low. And this would have made no sense that God, the one who has divine right in every way he is God, he willingly lowers himself and becomes obedient to the death and not just death, but the kind of death that's reserved for the lowest of the low. And this is unthinkable. This is what in our story is folly. And I want you to see why. I want you to understand and feel the weight that Paul was trying to communicate to the Philippians. I've got some verses for you in 1 Corinthians, and I'd like you to see some of this. For the sake of time, we're not going to read the whole section, but we're going to skip to a few of the verses. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the word of the cross, or the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That word folly folly is not just that it's um, intellectually foolish, it's that it's almost impossible, unthinkable, very nearly madness, right? And then uh, jump ahead to verse 21 and picking this up in the middle of the verse, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then in verse 23, Paul says this, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And this this message right here when you grasp it is why Paul says in the book of Philippians that Christ was willing to become obedient to death even death on a cross it was just plain a stumbling block for the Jews to preach Christ crucified those words don't mean to us what they what they should have what they would have meant to the original hearers remember Christ the Jews were looking for Christ or Messiah they were looking for a supreme king they were looking for a deliverer they were looking for the greatest of the greats a Christ or a Messiah would never be crucified. You do not preach a Christ crucified in the mind of a Jewish person who is contemporary to Christ. I mean, you preach a Christ glorified, you preach a Christ exalted, you preach a Christ coming to save, but you don't preach a Christ crucified. A crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Jews, especially through through one of the command or one of the parts of the law in Deuteronomy Jews knew that cursed was every man who hang on a tree there was no way the Messiah would hang on a tree and so when Paul and the Christians are preaching a Christ crucified well that's a stumbling block to the Jews they can't get their mind around the fact that a Christ would be crucified it's just plain foolishness to the Gentiles because why would the worst of you're saying I'm supposed to follow one who died a state criminal the worst of the worst and yet that's exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2 that this was the mind of Christ who though he was in the very form of God he took on all of human flesh in in his humanity was willing to lower himself to our status and to be willing to die become obedient to death even death on a cross brothers and sisters this is unthinkable to die the cruelest of the death. And and, and so we look at the cross and, and we see it as a beautiful picture of hope and all of Christianity has for nearly 19 centuries. And now we use them to decorate our homes. I have one hanging in my office. I have that on jewelry and you do as well. And we see that as beautiful. But when Paul said that he was willing to come to this earth and he was willing to be obedient to death, even death on a cross, 
Well, that'd be like hanging a picture of an electric chair up there or a guillotine or a hangman's noose and glorying in that. And Paul is saying, this is the foolishness of what we preach. Now, I want you to see what's going on here. This is why it's almost folly or foolishness what we preach. Think of the great reversal of nearly every, most world religions systems that are in effect today teach the exact reversal of what's going on here. Most people believe and most religions teach that you have to that that God will not come to your level that if you want any hope of being right with God or or, or even if the religion doesn't believe in a single theistic deity if it's monotheism or excuse me if it's a, a, just a, a, a god that's a religion that serves many many gods the the idea is that if you want to advance to the next life if you want to have some hope of heaven if you want to have some sense of life being made right again, then you have to work to better yourself. You have to work to to make yourself great. You have to work your way to God or heaven or utopia. And here's the exact reversal. God knew that there was no way we could work our way to him. Even in the Christian faith, this is what happens. Even in the Christian worldview, we recognize that every single one of us naturally, by our own bent, try to work our way to God. That we see our sin, and and if there's some way we can repay it back. If there's some way we can only work hard enough to, to right the wrongs. And so you think of Adam in the story of Genesis. With just a few chapters into the book of Genesis, you see that Adam was tempted, Adam and Eve were tempted to partake of the fruit that would make them like God. That they could become like God. That they could work their way to God. And in that, they committed the sin that was passed on to all of us. And now that sin separates us from God. And God knew that there was no way that we could work our way to Him. There was no way that we could have that relationship restored. And so God, rather than sitting in heaven, it was His full divine right to say, I am God. You are stuck in your sin. You cannot come to me unless you are flawless. And here's a God who does not do that. He completely reverses that. He does not make us work our way to him, but he says, I am willing to take on human flesh and to send my son to come to you because you will never be able to make it to me. And God sends his son to this earth in human form to die the worst kind of death to provide payment and sacrifice for sin so that any who would turn for their sin and trust in Christ for salvation could find life and forgiveness and eternal life hope in what Christ accomplished on that cross. And that's a stumbling block to the Jews. It is folly of the greatest form. Why would a God lower himself? And so that's why if someone challenges you, whether it be today or in the weeks to come, you believe that? That ridiculous, foolish story of a God, and you believe he's alive? And in one sense, you could say, listen, that's not the craziest thing. I don't just believe he's alive. I believe he was born of a virgin. I believe he died. I believe he rose again. I believe he was ascended into heaven. And I believe one day he's showing back up in the clouds and he's going to, in a twinkling of an eye, snatch me to be with him. But that's not the crazy part. The crazy part is that he was God. And he came to get me because I could never make my way to him. And as humans, many of us are willing to grant forgiveness on a relational one-to-one level if we think the other person is, will, is, is deserving of forgiveness. And yet 
in, in the Christian worldview, God completely reverses that. And forgiveness is not based on someone's deserving. Forgiveness is based in the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's folly. That's unthinkable. And yet it's our hope. It's our glory because of what God has done for us through the person of Christ. And so in the folly of the cross, we see the wisdom of God. And yet it's not, it doesn't stop right there at verse 9. There's something even greater that, that Christ was willing to humble himself and then look how the Father glorified in verse 9. And this is what Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you catch what happens? That Christ didn't just die on that cross and, and suffer the worst imaginable death that you could ever perceive. Christ rose. The, the tomb is empty. On resurrection day, we celebrate that Christ that was exalted by God. That, 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 that word exalted is like super exalted. God raising him to this incredibly high level. And, and it's speaking in several ways. It's just com- uh, capturing several events in the life of Christ and putting them all together and just saying God highly exalted him, that, that Christ was raised to new life, that he ascended, that he's seated at the right hand of God, that he was one day return as to rule and to reign and as judge and and we just look at this and say he he's super exalted christ has given him the name that is above every name so that one day at the name of jesus every knee will bow on heaven in heaven and on earth and on under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father this is what god accomplished through christ because christ was willing to humble himself Now God has exalted him, glorified him, and the Father himself is glorified through what Christ accomplished on the cross. And Paul is making it very clear that that one day every created being will acknowledge Christ as Lord. Everyone will see who God is. Every created spiritual being will acknowledge who God is and realize that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so my question for you is, as Dr. Russ asked us last week, who is Jesus to you? Do you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Because there will come a day where when you will acknowledge Jesus as Lord, even if you looked at him now as foolish. And at that point, if you haven't turned to Christ, it will be too late, but you will see the King in all of his glory. And so if you see and acknowledge that you are a sinner who is separated from God, then, then I would encourage you to turn from your sins, trust in Christ, call on Him alone for salvation. Because He's been given the name that's above every name. There's no other name whereby men will be saved. And so I would encourage you to, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ for salvation. There's one final point of application that I want to make to believers that are here this morning. 
Notice in verse 11, when he says, he's speaking, in, I'll start in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand why God did this? In everything that we celebrate on this Easter resurrection weekend, the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, took on flesh and was willing to die for us to provide payment for sins, and then that God has exalted him and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. All of this is to the glory of God the Father. So the truths of the gospel that Paul has been explaining throughout the book is for God's glory and God's glory alone. So my application to believers is this. Brothers and sisters, you're, if you are a Christian, if you trust that your sins have been forgiven through what Christ has done on the cross, your salvation is not primarily first and foremost for you. It is first and foremost to the glory of God the Father. And that's why God has saved you. And if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, that the gospel isn't primarily a get-out-of-jail-free card so that you can have your sins forgiven and end up eternity in heaven, if you don't understand that it's not that, but it's ultimately about God providing salvation for sins so that the Father could be glorified through what Christ accomplished on the cross, you will not catch the... the, the the full impact of the Christian life as Paul is intending throughout this book. If you don't see that it isn't first about you, but first about the glory of God, you won't recognize why we were able to go through chapter 1 and say that Paul's passion was to advance the gospel even in the face of hardship and difficulty. If you don't catch that, you won't catch the fact that as we get to next week, Paul's point at the close of chapter 1 is, is that these Believers are supposed to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you think your salvation is all about you and not the glory of God, you won't care about living as citizens of the gospel. If you, if you don't catch the fact that it's about the glory of God the Father, you won't understand why you need Christ-like humility towards one another, putting others' interests in front of yourselves. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And then as we get to the next passage in verse 12, it'll help you understand why we need to obediently work out our salvation with fear and trembling, li living as lights in the world around us. And so Paul gives these verses, and he says, this is the mind of Christ, and you need to have it there among yourselves, because if you do, it will transform the life of your church, is what he's saying. And, and it will help you understand why God was willing to take on human flesh and lower himself to this earth and provide salvation for sins. Because in the folly of the cross is the wisdom of God. And I hope that your hearts are encouraged with those truths this morning. And if you're here this morning and not a believer and you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, I would encourage you to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. He, he alone can save. There's no other way. You cannot work your way to God. He had to come to your level. If you would like to speak with someone about that this morning, we would love to speak with you. Speak with someone that brought you. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be down here in the front and would love to just speak with you afterwards. I'm going to close in prayer. We will ask God to use his word in our hearts. Father, we ask that you would use your word in our hearts, that we would see the folly of the cross, the fact that you as God were willing to take on human flesh. Though you were in the very nature of God, you lowered yourself to our level. You, you, you died the worst death imaginable, even a death on the cross, so that we could have sins forgiven. 
And Father, we thank you that you raised Christ to new life, that the tomb is empty, that Christ is alive. And we look forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, we pray. Amen.